This is Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith. A best of Radio EcoShock replay. It sounds impossible. An expert with decades of experience says global warming between 4 to 6 degrees could lead to mass die-off of the plankton that produces up to 70% of the world's oxygen. Forget rising seas, Sergei Petrovsky says. We are more likely to stifle than drown. I'll also be talking with the Canadian campaigner who got climate warning stickers put on gas pumps, and he hopes to take that global. But first, we're going to visit with an economic anthropologist and one of Sweden's leading thinkers on the economy, money, and climate change. Alf Hornberg is hoping the next economic crisis can help us change. Is it happening now? I'm Alex Smith, and this is Radio EcoShock. Imagine technology as a system that gathers up days of people's lives, mixes them with nature, physical things, and living things, and then channels products towards a minority, in fact, to a dwindling number of the wealthy elite. All the while, the same technology reduces our chances for survival. I think that's how the Swedish author and anthropologist Alf Hörnberg sees it, but only he can say. Let's ask him. Professor Alf Hörnberg, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Thank you, Alex. Now, most of us think of technology as good ideas, more tools to enable an easier or richer life. What's wrong with our wonderful world of cars, dishwashers, and cell phones? Right. Well, the notion that technology is basically about ingenious ideas is, I think, erroneous. And it it goes, you know, a couple of centuries back in time, uh, or rather it's been erroneous for that, that time. I would argue that up until the Industrial Revolution, it was largely correct. I mean, inventions and technologies were about people who figured out new practical way of, ways of doing things. But beginning with the Industrial Revolution, say, in the late 18th century, there was a second set of circumstances that was absolutely crucial for a technology to exist at all. And not only engineering knowledge, but also the social rates of exchange of resources and labor on the world market, uh, what I would call the world system. So differences in prices, for example, raw cotton from the cotton plantations in the U.S. versus the prices of cotton textiles produced in the U.K., these exchange relations were crucial for the very existence of technology. I would put it very drastically by saying, for example, that the, the steam engine would not have existed without the slave plantations in in southeastern United States. Well, now it seems everyone from greens to super capitalists are looking for the next technology that will save us from technology. Are there other options? Yeah. Uh, First of all, I just want to say you're absolutely right. Uh, This is one of the most difficult things to sort of deconstruct this this belief in technological progress because everybody, regardless of ideological color, uh, subscribes to it. Uh, Everybody believes that there will be a new technology that will make us sustainable and so on. 
my fundamental argument is that we should not be looking for new technological solutions. We should be looking at money. We should be looking at the economy as the problem, the problem that both generates these uh, unsustainable and uh, inequitable technologies and uh, destroys our environment. We should be thinking in terms of how our ideas on money and the economy can be changed instead. Well, right. Speaking in Paris a couple of years ago, you suggested only an economic crisis would open doorways for meaningful change at the political level, and it looks like we're entering another crisis now. Does that give you more hope? Well, uh, I I must admit that I I felt uh, quite a lot of hope around 2008. There was a lot of talk of a global financial crisis, and I was wondering if this might, in fact, shape a new kind of political uh, discussion, dialogue about the role of the economy in human society and the biosphere and so on. But now, I mean, uh, this year, 2016, eight years will have passed, and I, I don't see any major changes, really. So I think it will require more of a crisis, a more fundamental crisis, to make it feasible to talk about these things in a more detached way. I think we're way too comfortable yet, in at least in, in Europe and North America, to really, really start rethinking what modern civilization is all about and technology is all about. I totally agree with you. But I did notice after the shock of 2008 that a few communities started local currencies or at least barter dollars. Could an alternative currency actually help reduce carbon emissions? Yes, I'm quite convinced that that's the way to approach it. But uh, I've been looking at the great number of experiments with alternative currencies that have been conducted over the past 30 or 40 years, actually, the so-called let's economies, local exchange trading systems, and you have Ithaca hours, you have Bristol pounds, you have a number of different kinds of community currencies, alternative currency schemes. And I do think that they they suffer from certain, you know, they have certain problems. Uh, and, and one of them is I, that, that they're generally uh, initiated from the grassroots level, which, which sounds democratic and nice, but which means that they are generally, they're, they're sort of antagonistic vis-a-vis the establishment, which generally means that they are marginalized and they survive only as long as a few enthusiasts manage to keep their energy up. I mean, if they rely on local people's enthusiasm, then they're doomed. We, we need a system that really is backed up by the authorities and that will continue regardless of individual enthusiasm. And, and, and I think the other thing that is I would like to see changed in, in, in these initiatives is that the, the, the currency, I would call it a complementary currency, because it would exist alongside the the formal general currency. But this complementary currency needs to specify what kinds of goods and services it can be exchanged for. And to my mind, it would be important to relocalize the economy by saying that this complementary currency can be used only to buy goods and services that have been produced within a certain radius geographically of the point of purchase. It could be 30 kilometers or 50 kilometers. That's 
not that important. But the important thing is to have this complementary currency distinguishing between locally produced goods and services on the one hand and what is being sold on the globalized market uh, on the other. Well, I guess it goes without saying, if we have local economies, we're not shipping things long distance using fossil fuels, and there's a greater chance we're not abusing someone else's rights by hiring dirt cheap labor. I want to get on to climate change. Do you see that as another big problem for humanity, or, or is it the ultimate threat to survival? Oh, absolutely. I, I, it's, it's, it is the ultimate threat. And I understand completely that why it engages uh, millions of people all over the world and why we have these enormous conferences. People are seriously worried and they have every reason to be worried about climate change. Alf Horneberg, you became more widely known after your 2001 book, The Power of the Machine. This year you will publish another titled Global Magic. I realize I'm about to ask a huge question, but can you give us a couple of examples of the way your thinking has evolved in the last 15 years? Yeah, one of the examples I would give has to do with the distinction that I have often been asked to make between magic and technology. And I've found it analytically challenging and difficult to pin down exactly what I mean about machine fetishism, which is a concept that implies that technology is really a version, a modern version of magic. And uh, actually, just last year, I, I came up with a, a, a very concrete example to, to illustrate what, I, what I'm saying. And my point of departure is to compare coins and keys. Now, coins and keys are little pieces of metal. And according to uh, what is known as actor network theory and people who theorize about how objects and artifacts are, are given agency, how they actually intervene in, 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 in social processes, humans delegate agency to things, to artifacts, to the things they make. And uh, this is true for both coins and keys, I would argue. We, we delegate, we, we, we let the coins and the keys act, so to speak. They, they have social impacts. But there's a crucial difference between coins and keys, and, and, and this is what I, I really would like to emphasize. Uh, the agency of coins is contingent on what humans believe about them, about their subjective ideas. Money would not have any agency if we did not believe that money was valuable, whereas keys have agency. They turn a lock simply because of the way they're physically designed, not because of what humans believe about them. And I would argue that this simple distinction is what distinguishes magic from technology. And I would argue, actually, as a corollary, that very much of modern technology somewhere along the line is contingent on human beliefs. So I would argue in that sense, it is a version of magic. We talked about money, but the real underpinnings of our financial system seem to remain off-limits and mysterious. I mean, scientists are allowed to study natural systems in tremendous detail, how sea creatures reproduce and so on. 
But who really owns what is a secret matter for private banks and private corporations, even if they threaten to ruin the natural world. Can you comment on that? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I agree with your, your understanding of, of finance uh, completely. And um, I, I do think that finance is actually the point where magic enters the picture. I think after 2008 and the financial crisis, most of us have become aware of the fact that, that there's a kind of a magic about money. I mean, for us here in Europe, it's, it's pretty amazing to hear that the U.S. in in, in just – the, the last couple of years or so has become a major exporter of, of, of fossil fuels again. And you wonder, how, how, how is this possible? You know, we thought, uh, speaking of net energy and, 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 and so on, we, we thought that U.S. had to go to war in the Middle East to, to secure its, its, its oil imports. And here we're hearing, no, no, the U.S. can fix its own oil at this point. And when we, the more we think about it, of course, we realize that this would be impossible without finance, that it's actually what goes on on Wall Street and, and other contexts like that that makes it possible to pump oil out of the U.S. and run technology on it. So finance, the magic of money, is actually making American oil an active material component in the economy. Uh, finance underwrites the, the agency, the material agency of oil. And that goes to show how magic actually intervenes, impinges, and becomes fundamental to technology. But if we stop believing that, we're told, if we try and change the rules of the game, it's all going to fall apart and we'll all starve in the dark in our cities. Uh, how do we manage to rationalize and, and become so blind to these things? Yeah, I, I think... I mean, we have a lot to learn about how human perceptions and worldviews actually intervene in very tangible ways in the way we organize global society, technologically, economically. We can no longer believe that uh, the physical world, the material world, and the, the world of human ideas are two separate parts of reality because they do intermingle and what we have to do is to understand how how this occurs, and we have to maintain, I think, uh, importantly, an analytical distinction between uh, the sort of the pre pre human uh, world, thermodynamics, uh, gravity, the material world that we used to call nature on one hand, and all the kinds of social conventions and symbolic systems and and ideas and, 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 and so on that we develop in human societies. We have to maintain an analytical dis distinction to be able to, to say this is nature and this is society. But but then, of course, we know that the nature and society are, are all the time intermingled in our bodies, in our landscapes, our technologies. Uh, they're always um, mixed up. But we should know what comes from nature and what comes from society. I think we, we shouldn't let go of that distinction. Radio Ecoshock. You are tuned to Radio Ecoshock. I'm Alex Smith with my guest, the Swedish author and anthropologist from Lund University, Alf Hernberg. Alf, picking up on what you just said, I interviewed the popular German journalist Christian Schwagrel about his book, The Anthropocene, The Human Era and How It Shapes Our Planet. What dangers lurk in proclaiming this to be the new human age? 
Yeah, um, a colleague and I uh, actually published a little piece on this in the Anthropocene Review of the journal uh, a, few, a couple of years ago, and it's been quite widely cited. Uh, the argument that we, we have advanced in that paper is that if we call this the age of humans, we're implying that it's humanity, an undifferentiated human species that has created all the problems we have in the, in the Anthropocene, the climate change and so on. Whereas my colleague and I would argue that it's, it's a, historically, it's, it's a minority of, of the human species uh, who have um, propelled these changes by inaugurating the Industrial Revolution and consequently the Anthropocene. So we would prefer other denominations. I would personally prefer the Technocene. I know my colleague Andreas Malm coined the concept uh, Capitalocene uh, and so on. There are other other words that would make it more clear that this is not humanity as a whole that has developed this new era. It's It's a small privileged elite who have actually driven these these changes. Okay, we started talking about technology, and people grudgingly admit money could be a root of evil, but certainly not technology. Are you suggesting we can unplug and walk away from the techno mass we have created, and wouldn't billions of people die in short order if we did that? Um, I think very much would emerge sort of automatically out of a, a fundamental change of the economy. And um, I'm not at all convinced that uh, sort of getting off the technology, so to speak, would put a lot of people in peril. In fact, I would argue the opposite. It would liberate people to start using the land and their labor time for more sustainable things than we're doing now. Actually, there, there is enough soil and, and other resources on this planet to support the, the, the population we have now without fossil fuels. Um, in fact, if you want to be really drastic, another colleague of mine uh, figured out that if everybody was a vegan, now, of course, we're not all vegans, but if all humans were vegans, there would be room for about 30 billion of us on this planet without cutting down one more tree and without fossil fuels. So really, I, I think that this myth that, you know, we have to have fossil fuels and modern technology in order to feed uh, two of the world's seven, eight billion people, I think is is a myth, definitely. Okay. Another justification is the idea that the geographical locus of this collection machine, as you might call it, has an ability to shift over time. We think of the rise of Japan, Korea, now China as centers of not just technology, but the accumulation of capital, the wealth might appear anywhere, we say. Or does technology always need that hinterland of slums and poverty somewhere else to function? I, I think it does. I've published a few texts where I used the notion of the zero-sum world or a zero-sum game. Uh, I do think that technology is very much about saving time and space by some people at the expense of time and space lost by other people uh, so that what we think of as technological progress or or growth or or capital accumulation is really about uh, developing capacities 
to liberate and save time and space, human time and natural space, in some sectors of the world system at the expense of, of other sectors where, where human time and natural space are lost and are in fact used to subsidize those uh, gains that, that some of us with enough purchasing power make. Alf Hernberg, what does economic anthropology tell us about climate change and our prospects of avoiding a climate catastrophe? I'm not sure that economic anthropology in itself directly would, would respond to that, but there are perspectives from economic anthropology that I think could be applied. Uh, for example, our almost universal uh, human concern with reciprocity. The classic, of course, is Marcel Moore's book, The Gift, where he draws on the Maori informant who early in the 20th century says that if you you, you receive a gift, you have to repay it somehow. And, and I think this can actually be applied to, to climate change. There's a lot of talk now about climate justice, and, and we know that um, portions of world population have been using much too large parts of the atmosphere as sinks for carbon dioxide at the expense of other populations who are suffering from more floods and droughts and so on than others. So there is a kind of a reciprocity problem about climate and climate justice. Yeah, so I guess it's a crass question, but all of us are asking ourselves inside, what would climate justice cost us? the average person in America or Scandinavia, what do we have to give up in order to get that? Yeah, I, I, I wish I was good at remembering figures, but uh, let's just put it this way, that uh, in order for these changes to really materialize that people talked about in Paris when everybody was cheering about how we're now entering the post-fossil age and so on, if, if those changes would really materialize, it would require very, very much and a very, very radical change of, of lifestyle for most of us. I know that, for example, in Sweden, carbon dioxide emissions, not only from what we produce in Sweden, but if we include also the stuff we consume that has been produced, much of it in China, we have about emissions of about 12 tons of carbon Per, per year per capita, which is about twice the, the formal statistics that say, like, okay, Sweden has about five or six tons per capita, but that's just production-based. And if we want to get down to, say, around one ton per capita, you can imagine that it would mean reducing our consumption levels to about one-twelfth of where we are now. And, and, and we're talking that scale. So it, it's, a, it's a major change for Europeans and Americans. Yeah, personally, I think one idea is to get rid of the idea of new, that we have to buy everything new. There's already so many products in the world, too many cars already, all of that. I think we just have to start using used things. That's one answer. Well, you know, the cynic would say that words like justice and morality or ethics don't matter to enough people to change our course. But I have noticed a series of older people like you, myself, and James Hansen seem motivated partly by fear for our grandchildren's future. As an anthropologist, is that a viable driver for human action? 
Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. As you say, I, I have grandchildren myself, and, and it makes me think a lot more about what this planet will look like 70 or 80 years from now. I think the the concept of morality is, is very important in these discussions, in particular because um, modern neoclassical or neoliberal economics has a very special relation to morality that I think is, is problematic. Uh, I've often tried to test the concept of unequal exchange on economists, and they say, well, we never heard of it, really. We don't use that word. And I think the whole notion of unequal exchange, which is a moral concept, basically, the fact that it's not doesn't sort of ring a bell for economists. It tells you that morality is not their main point. You know, it's not their main issue. Their main issue is is the the mechanisms that determine prices on the world market. But what is actually being exchanged on the world market in terms of energy, matter, embodied labor, and so on, land, embodied land, is not as important as whether those price mechanisms operate the way they should, according to economists. So morality is is a, a, a major issue, but to get back to your question, whether it's enough to really make us change our behavior, I, I cannot answer, and I, I certainly don't want to suggest that I uh, personally am doing all that much for the world, except you know writing my books and and, and getting engaged in the debates. Um, I, I do think we need uh, major decisions, structural decisions about the economy that need to be taken democratically in in parliaments. I don't think we should be hoisting the burden of onto individuals because we feel bad about the world as it is and we have so little power as individuals so i don't think it's it's really correct to to let us carry the the burden of guilt as well for what's happening well some people say we've been brainwashed by a powerful elite uh, i mean there are mega corporations and the media are owned by just a few corporations but that sort of lets us off the hook, and I wonder if it's true. I mean, is it the rest of us? When politicians say, well, look, I don't have the political support to make these changes. People want what they want. How can we answer that? Mm. Yeah, well, so far we're just too comfortable uh, in, in Europe and North America to really make drastic changes in our lives. But I do believe that crisis of one kind or another – perhaps in particular financial crisis, could could quickly uh, change our readiness to change. So I, I think we may need some kind of push from the economy to really change our behavior. And people are apparently very versatile. I mean, we we only need to recall in the 1930s, which was the last major economic depression. And uh, as, as far as I understand, I uh, wasn't around then, but as far as I understand, people very readily, you know, plowed up their lawns and planted potatoes and and, and changed their lifestyle very quickly as an adjustment to the, the economic changes that they were experiencing. And I think that that's what we can probably hope for in the future as well. Well, our time together has been too short. We can't possibly capture your long career of 
powerful ideas. Alf Hernberg has been one of the more difficult and rewarding guests that I have researched. You can find links to learn more yourself in my weekly show blog at ecoshock.info. We reached Alf at the prestigious Lund University in Sweden, where he has been a professor of human ecology since 1993. Thank you so much for sharing your time and ideas with us. Thank you, Alex. You're listening to Ecoshock Radio for the world. I'm Alex Smith. Get it all at our website, ecoshock.org. A best of Radio Ecoshock replay. You have heard that a warming world will flood coastal cities. Hotter seas will drive more extreme weather events. All that may not matter if a new paper on plankton is correct. The authors say, if the ocean life that creates more than half the oxygen in the atmosphere dies off, we are more likely to stifle than drown. To understand this new threat, let's get to work. The paper is called Mathematical Modeling of Plankton-Oxygen Dynamics Under the Climate Change. From the Department of Mathematics at the University of Leicester in Britain, we've reached the co-author Sergei Petrovsky. Sergei, welcome to Radio Ecoshock. Thank you, Alex. Just to disturb our listeners a little bit, your peer-reviewed study suggests there is a tipping point in ocean heating that could drive plankton into extinction. Is that right? Yes, yes. I'm afraid our model uh, shows it quite clearly. Well, with something that big, we'd better start at the bottom. Most of us don't know where our oxygen comes from. What is plankton, really? Uh, plankton is a is a kind of generic term. Uh, plankton applies to, well, almost everything that floats in the water, in the oceans. And uh, usually it's divided into two large taxonomic groups, like phytoplankton, which are small aquatic plants, and zooplankton, which are small aquatic animals like shrimps or similar. Could we see an individual species of plankton if we held just one in our hands? I guess this is a kind of uh, typical confusion. Plankton organisms are not necessarily small. So some of them can indeed be just uh, a fraction of a millimeter, but uh, some of them can be as large as 10 centimeters or even more. So you certainly can uh, hold some of them in, 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 in hands, yes. Okay, I'm just trying to picture it. So phytoplankton are the tiny plants in the ocean that create the majority of oxygen in the air. How do they do that? And the key question here is, why is there a net gain of oxygen to the atmosphere? Phytoplankton are not much more different in that aspect compared to all other plants. This is one of the generic features of most of the plants, that they consume CO2 and turn it uh, by the process known as photosynthesis into a stock of the nutrients, a kind of sugar, which they use for, for their growth, and oxygen, free oxygen as essentially byproduct. How do scientists know that ocean temperature is the key determinant driving net production of oxygen by plankton? Uh, there have been uh, a few studies uh, in about 10-15 years ago, so several studies actually, and people just measured actually how the rate of oxygen production depends on their water temperature. And uh, their key point here, important for the understanding, is that 
plants, all plants and uh, phytoplankton as well, do not only produce oxygen, they produce oxygen in the daytime because uh, sunlight is an uh, essential component of that, but they also consume oxygen during the night because as well as all living creatures, they need oxygen to, to essentially to breathe, so for their metabolism. And the point is that their rate of consumption, oxygen consumption, and the rate of oxygen production, they depend differently on the temperature. So the, the net oxygen production, which is, which is obviously the difference between production and consumption, it appears to decrease with the increase in temperature. That was something that was observed in the ocean. And yet I was surprised and a little confused to read in your paper that scientists are not really sure whether oxygen production from plankton will increase or decrease as the seas warm. We don't really know that yet? Well, uh, we try to, to be careful with that because um, I said there, there was several studies about that, which means that, in fact, only a handful of phytoplankton species was checked, right? But any plankton community consists of hundreds and hundreds of different species. And uh, currently, uh, at our current state of knowledge, we cannot rule out that there are species that uh, respond differently to the increase in water temperature. So that's, we just uh, try to keep all possibilities open. Well, fair enough. How did you deal with that uncertainty in trying to predict the impact of warming on plankton? We considered two different scenarios, that is, two opposite scenarios. When, uh, one of them is uh, when uh, the net oxygen production actually decreases with the water temperature, as was observed in the ocean, at least for some species. And the second opposite, when the oxygen production actually increases with the temperature. And quite surprisingly, we observed that in both cases, even in the second case, which seems to be a good option, in both cases, there are sufficiently large change in the rate of the oxygen production results in a disaster. Hmm. So any study needs a starting point, and I presume that would be our current state. And you say that maybe we're in a safe state now, or maybe it's not stable, but it's surrounded by a stable limit cycle. Could you tell us what is a stable limit cycle? A stable limit cycle is a, well, it's essentially a mathematical terminology originated in the area of mathematics known as dynamical systems or dynamical systems theory. And it's essentially a periodic solution. And uh, usually people talk about a stable limit cycle, which means that uh, wherever system is at a current moment or at the initial moment, it will be eventually attracted by this cycle, so it will start oscillating, somehow oscillating according to this uh, uh, periodical uh, solution that is limit cycle. Uh, uh, does it make it any clearer? Or Yes, yes, I think I understood that. Now, no matter which model or path you worked with, as you said, it seemed to eventually lead to disaster with more warming. What is the worst-case scenario? Well, both these cases, we, well, uh, between ourselves in our research group, we call them Catastrophe 1 and Catastrophe 2. Uh, they are both catastrophes, so it's, uh, it's, it's a difficult choice to choose between two bad things, really. So both of them result in uh, oxygen depletion, uh, 
which in real term would mean that their oxygen concentration in their atmosphere will drop for at least a few times. Do we know how fast the ocean is warming now? And from that, could we make any prediction about when we might cross that tipping point for the survival of plankton and, and maybe for ourselves? Well, that that depends on how things will be going. Uh, and uh, that very much involves the political component of, of this global climate change. Because, um, I mean, uh, there are different scenarios of further climate change, like best case and worst case. And uh, in the worst case scenario, an increase in their global temperature, and which also means uh, average increase in their water temperature in the oceans. So by worst case scenario, it will be about four degrees by the end of the century. And uh, that would be dangerously close to the catastrophe predicted by our study. You do say in the paper that one model suggests possible warning signs. Could you please tell us about that? Uh, Yes, uh, that's what we observed, is uh, that it's not necessarily a considerable drop in their available oxygen in the atmosphere. It's it's more subtle, actually. Uh, Subtleness is that uh, the oscillations the temporal oscillations in the oxygen concentration that, that can be measured uh, in, in the air and as well as in the oceans, uh, the nature of these fluctuations, which are usually quite kind of random, quite chaotic, so they, they are going to become much more regular. So regularity is usually considered like a good thing compared to chaos. But in this case... Uh, regularity emerging in these fluctuations would likely mean that we are very close to the catastrophe. Very interesting. This is Radio Ecoshock. I'm Alex Smith. My guest is Sergei Petrovsky from the University of Leicester, UK. We're talking about the awful possibility that global warming could endanger the world's oxygen supply by killing off plankton in hotter seas. Sergei, doubt is built into the scientific process, and of course, We all want to reject such a big threat to life as being impossible. What sort of comments did you get back from the peer review process? Well, in fact, it was uh, uh, one of the the most positive (laughs) reviews on uh, my papers definitely for, for the last several years. There were two reviewers. And both of them admitted that it's uh, definitely very interesting and potentially very important study. And uh, in fact, uh, uh, comments, uh, there, was, there was not a lot of comments. In fact, comments were only actually supposed to increase the clarity because uh, their uh, language was not good enough at some, some parts or some small inconsistencies. So it was purely technical, in fact. Okay. You did factor in the animal type of plankton, the zooplankton, in your study, even though they don't produce oxygen. Why did you include them? Uh, Sure, yes, but uh, zooplankton does not uh, produce oxygen, but they consume it. And any sensible model should uh, account for a balance. So if there are species or components of the model that produce oxygen, then then there, there may be also components that consume oxygen. I mean, we considered certain hierarchy of models. We actually started with a simpler model, which does not contain zooplankton. Uh, it's only uh, phytoplankton and oxygen. And uh, the simplest catastrophe, catastrophe one, 
which still result in a complete oxygen depletion happens there. So that would correspond to their decrease in oxygen net production with the water temperature. But the second type of catastrophe, when their oxygen depletion follows as a result of the increase, surprisingly, of the increase in the oxygen net production, that only can be seen when we include additional feedbacks, additional oxygen consumption by zooplankton. Another predicted change in the seas as they warm is more ocean stratification. If the oceans become more layered and, as we know, essential nutrients upwelling to the plankton near the surface may not happen, did you add this possibility to your model? No, not yet. Not yet. Uh, and uh, this is uh, something which is definitely on our list of things to do. Uh, I mean, it, it should be made very clear that uh, any model is uh, essentially idealization, of course. And although we are certain, we, we feel confident that the main feedbacks uh, have been included into the model, but of course there are many other factors that uh, have not been included yet. And uh, this uh, details of, or some more details of uh, oceanographic or ocean structure, like stratification, upwellings, and other things, uh, they eventually they will need to be included, of course, uh, uh, which means that uh, there is still a hope that this catastrophe is not as real as it seems now, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't seem like a strong hope, but all right. Sergei Petrovsky, is there any way to test this theory other than living it out over history? Oh, yes. Uh, oh, yes. Um, there is at least a couple of things we are trying to arrange now by starting collaboration with other people. So first thing to do, uh, or one way to, to check these predictions, uh, would be to simply to check what may happen in a laboratory, in fact. So one can think about a relatively simple experiment, uh, placing some phytoplankton into a controlled laboratory environment and changing temperature, checking the oxygen production, changing uh, light intensity, all these things. So that should be doable. So we are currently trying to uh, find a group of relevant group of biologists who could be able and willing to do that and the second way is to look not into the future but into the past because, of course, uh, there is a very long uh, history, a geological history of uh, the living Earth, so to say. And um, geological history does show that there were a few catastrophes in the past that resulted in mass mortality of animals and plants. But, uh, of course, um, it, uh, for the moment it remains unclear whether the mechanism of those catastrophes was like we predicted or it was something completely different. So these are two things uh, to move this uh, research forward that we're currently thinking about. Yes, I was going to ask you about that because I know the oceans have been very warm before. They even found crocodiles on Ellesmere Island in the Arctic Ocean in, in Canada. And just the fact that we still have plankton says that they haven't experienced any massive die-off. Wouldn't that be correct? Well, not quite, because as as I said, there were at least three or four, possibly five disastrous events in the geological history. So like long history, really, like uh, 10 million years ago. So, uh, but this, I mean, 
this mass mortality did not mean, of course, that everybody was killed. If everybody would have been killed, then there was no story to continue, really. So some relatively small group of animals and plants obviously survived after each of these catastrophes, and uh, that was a driver for their new uh, age in their biological evolution. Well, ocean life is so large and complex, I'm not going to advise listeners to stock up on oxygen just yet, but that is not the purpose of your paper anyway. Sergey, what drove you to wonder about life limits in a warming ocean? And why do you suppose this really important and maybe obvious question hasn't been well studied before now? Well, in my personal, so first part of your question, in my personal perspective, I guess it was kind of a natural stage because uh, I used to be a senior scientist in the main Russian Oceanography Institute, which is called Shershov Oceanography Institute. And I worked there for 15 years and uh, was uh, heavily involved in plankton modeling. So at that time I was more interested in other things like uh, factors controlling the spatial distribution and these sort of things. So in, to include oxygen into the models was, to some extent, was sort of a natural development of my interests. About the second part, I'm not really sure. I mean, I, I was reading a lot of a lot of papers over the last couple of years about that, and surprisingly, but it seems like most of the people just stuck on their global cycle of CO2, and then uh, O2 is uh, assumed to be sort of following that uh, carbon dioxide cycle. Uh, so, and uh, for, for that excessive interest to carbon dioxide cycle is, uh, of course, understandable because CO2 is regarded as the main agent behind the global warming. Well, I suppose it has just been overlooked, maybe. Well, important things do get overlooked, and sometimes the most obvious questions get asked last, has been my experience. Is there anything else you would like to tell our listeners? Uh, don't lose your hope. <laughs> there is a catastrophe. I mean, um, we, as I said, we clearly see it in our models, but models uh, are still models. Yeah? So it's, it's very large and long work ahead to check their reality of those catastrophes and uh, to check their actual dangerous threshold uh, in their temperature increase. For the moment, it's very roughly assessed like six degrees, but it can be more than that. And unfortunately, it can be less than that, but it's, it's, it's still in the future. So, uh, I'm, I mean, by saying don't lose your hope, I am quite serious because after my paper was published, uh, about one month ago, I received a lot of a lot of mail, in fact, and some people uh, seem to be really scared. And of course, it was not my point to scare people. You know? So my point was to warn people that there may be more danger in the, this global climate change. So may some bad things may have been overlooked, but there is no reason to panic. Not yet, anyway. Thank you for saying that and for doing this research. We've been talking with Sergei Petrovsky. He co-authored the paper Mathematical Modeling of Plankton Oxygen Dynamics Under the Climate Change, as published in the Bulletin of Mathematical Biology in November of 2015. The title may sound a bit boring, and there is a lot of math in the paper, but 
As you've just heard, the subject is critical if we want to avoid disturbing the ecosystem that enables us all to breathe. Find links to this paper and articles about it in my weekly show blog, published Wednesdays at ecoshock.info. Sergey, thank you so much for talking with us. My pleasure, Alex. My pleasure. Check out the Radio Ecoshock website. We're at ecoshock.org. Hey, what's this sticker on the gas pump? Me? You mean me? Cigarettes kill millions, and we warn users right on the pack. Burning gasoline kills the future. In Canada, Robert Shirky left his law practice to put us right into the climate changer driver's seat. Robert, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Thanks for having me on the program, Alex. Okay, what do these climate labels on gas pumps look like? Well, they are evocative of the tobacco warning labels. So often right now when you go gas up, there will be a three inch by three inch square on your gas pump that has an advertisement, maybe for a points program or come in and and get your coffee. We're thinking on that space instead, why not have a climate change, call it a warning label, information label, or risk disclosure label, where the top half of it has an image that communicates an impact of climate change, and the lower half has some text. Uh, So some example text might read, you know, caution use of this fuel product contributes uh, to climate change, which may cause blank. And perhaps you want to highlight Uh, ocean acidification or uh, extreme weather or what have you. Um, And then, of course, there'd be a little link to a website on it where that will be a resource for all the different uh, things that an individual can do uh, to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions footprint. Is this happening anywhere in the world? It is. It's actually exciting. I've been advocating for it across Canada uh, at the local level, asking cities and towns to pass this into law required of gasoline retailers Across Canada, we've had councils from coast to coast endorse the concept and call on other orders of government to implement it. And that, of course, gives us great leverage in our conversation with the province and the federal government. But it was in late 2015 that uh, the city of North Vancouver in British Columbia became the first municipality in the world to actually pass it into law. Shortly after that, two more communities came on board on the West Coast and more expect in 2016. Uh, and these were global firsts. Uh, it was in all sorts of media around the world, and we got lots of interest from around the world. And so our game plan is that we actually have volunteers across the country that are harvesting email addresses of politicians from all around the world from government websites. And in the next few weeks, we're going to to send this concept and say, hey, here's this idea. It's low cost. Here's why we think it's compelling. And it's happening here in Canada. You should You should pursue this in your jurisdiction. Do you have any interest in the United States? We've been working with a few groups in San Francisco, Berkeley, Santa Monica, and Seattle. And there's a a few members uh, of different environmental groups there that through our guidance have been advocating for it. And they've been able to have some success, but uh, there's a bit of a delay because there's a case on cell phone labels that's working its way through the courts and counselors in those communities want to see the outcome of that case before passing this thing into law. So I think you'll see more action in the United States probably in the summertime after some legal questions are are then resolved. You know, I don't think about it. I drive my car up to the pump, I grab it and fill it up. Are you trying to make me feel guilty or what's what's the idea here? Yeah, well, that's not it. It's a simple intervention. All it really does is it communicates hidden costs or externalities to end users Uh, Much in the same way, actually, I mean, you could say that uh, pricing mechanisms 
you know, like a carbon tax or a cap and trade regime, seek to to capture and convey those harms, you know, via that quantitative approach to the end user. What this does is it uses a qualitative approach, so image and text, uh, to capture and communicate these hidden costs of fossil fuels to the end user. And the idea is if you can disclose risk further downstream, that's what actually drives change upstream. So on the demand side of the equation, we have a habitual automatic behavior that's just part of the everyday fabric of living. And it's been normalized for a couple of generations. We don't even think twice about it. And if that's what you have, if that's the situation downstream, it's sort of the perfect downstream environment to almost perpetuate the status quo. And we we tend to distance ourselves from the problem. So we'll we'll point upstream, we'll say, well, it's a problem of pipelines and oil sands and offshore drilling and shipping and so on. And I think you will see some wins in that in that approach. But if at the end of the day, if we're not if we're not addressing the demand side of the equation, if we're not causing broader dissatisfaction with that status quo solution, it's going to be really hard uh, to sort of transition away from fossil fuels. So all this does is, is it makes us feel more connected to the problem, makes it more tangible, more real, takes that faraway consequence, brings it into the here and now. And in doing so, it makes us less satisfied with the status quo. It makes us say, well, but what am I supposed to do? What are my options? And if you get, you know, if I start to say that, if you do, if our neighbors do, if an entire community does, if an entire marketplace does, you're creating this ideal social environment for reform. So all of a sudden, a politician then will have greater political capital to be able to implement climate-friendly initiatives, you know, A, B, and C. Uh, And you'll see as well, I think, auto manufacturers be incentivized to deliver alternate solutions to meet this shift in demand. So it's a simple, low-cost intervention to make the problem more real. Uh, And I think that's a, a necessary first step to then more meaningful reforms. How does the amount of emissions that actually come from us, the consumers, relate to things like the tar sands and and the pipeline projects? Well, interestingly, uh, it's actually the vast majority of emissions that come from end use. So it depends on how carbon intense uh, your fuel choice is. So say if you get something from the oil sands, it's going to be about 30% of uh, emissions come from extraction, processing, and, and moving the product. Um, if it's, if it's a, uh, you know, a light crude, then you're looking at something like 20% of emissions might come from upstream sources. But really at the end of the day, it's not when it comes to greenhouse gas emissions, it's not, you know, taking the stuff out of the earth. It's not then refining it or shipping it to a point of consumption. It's when you and I combust the product, when we burn it in our vehicles, that's actually where the vast majority of emissions come from. And, And separate and apart from that, I mean, if we do, if we do transition away from the internal combustion engine, then that drives so much change upstream because I like to think, and and a lot of economists would agree with this, that the value of a commodity is derived from its uses. So it's critical to to ask that question, well, how do we use the product? It's critical to look at uses because if you address that aspect, uh, then you, you drive all sorts of change upstream. Robert Cherky, I have to ask on a personal level, how could you give up a career in law to become a climate activist? That's never going to pay very well. Take it from me. Well, I've realized it doesn't pay very well at all. I think I understood the urgency and the gravity of the problem, and uh, I wasn't all that happy practicing law. It wasn't it wasn't as fulfilling as you know I might have hoped it to have been, and I was concerned about this problem. And it was actually my um, my grandfather who, before he passed away, his last words to me were to to do what you love. And I recall 
being at his funeral uh, in Saskatchewan and standing over top of his grave and my father, you know, beside him who, who had passed away a few years prior. And next to that was this empty patch of green grass. And there I was staring down at that, you know, with those words echoing through my head, do what you love. And I realized that, hey, you know, I'm kind of staring down mortality. We all are. And I started to ask myself some of the bigger questions and, you know, what do I do with the time left? So I've always had a few interesting ideas for campaigns. Uh, this was one. I just eventually sort of plucked it off the back burner and transitioned to this work. And while I'm certainly, you know, racking up debt, I can't say it is more meaningful. Uh, and we're optimistic, actually. It's it's tough fundraising in Canada if you lack charitable status. And given the nature of my political advocacy, I can't get charitable status. But our hope is that if we get lucky, if we get one philanthropist that says, hey, you know what? You guys are creating Global First. You've got a game plan to get this all around the world. I want to support this. I value impact, say, more than I do a tax receipt. Uh, I think that 2016 might be the year we get a bit of a break. And hopefully then I'll slowly work my way back out of debt. In the meantime, the party's on Visa and MasterCard. <laughs> oh, Robert, we do need more more like you. Uh, now, now tell us how, how people can find out more and get this gas pump label into our own community. Well, I'd encourage uh, everyone listening to visit OurHorizon.org. That's www.our, like yours and mine, horizon.org. And from there, there's all sorts of resources. There's a TEDx talk, there's longer lectures, there's pre-written emails that you can send to your counselors. Easy thing to do is just take a moment to go there, learn about it, uh, and then write your representatives. The other thing, too, if, if, if you are able to, to support the campaign financially, we've got a, a crowdfund. Uh, and if by chance, if there is a billionaire <laughs> listening to this broadcast, you know, call me. It would be amazing to, to have some, some support. So thank you. I wonder if we do have any billionaire listeners. We might. Okay, <laughs> folks, try this out, ourhorizon.org. You can do it. Get your local government to require climate warning labels on gas pumps. I'm Alex Smith reporting. Get all our past programs as free MP3 files at ecoshock.org. I'm Alex. Thank you for listening and caring about your world.